This call is being we're recorded. All, we're also excited that uh, the regulations were proposed by the IRS on Friday, which uh, is hectic but really exciting because uh, a lot of the rules that were a little bit vague and creating uncertainty and uh, uh, you know impeding investors from really diving into the zones have been clarified. Not all of them, but a lot of them. So after we speak with the PIDC on what's going on in Philadelphia, uh, we'll also provide at least our preliminary comments. Um, we're still understanding and digesting the regs. It's a really complicated package, but we'll provide our, our initial uh, comments on the proposed regs and how that should affect deal flow. And uh, our next call on um, two weeks from today, we'll really dive into that in, in more depth as we really uh, dive into the regs and, and see how they're affecting deals. So uh, again, we're excited. We're going to talk to the PIDC for about 20 minutes, and then we will also uh, talk about our initial thoughts on the proposed regs for, for the second 20 minutes or so. Uh, if you have questions, we have a, a new email address. It's OZ, just OZ, like Opportunity Zones, at rccblaw.com. And we're happy to take questions at the end of the presentation, uh, the PIDC portion and the proposed reg portion. And, uh, and you know, we want this to be interactive, so please do email your questions and, and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll hop on them. Uh, Jenny, are you on the phone? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Uh, yep. So this is Jenny Crowther. She's the VP of Product and Resource Development at the PIDC. And uh, Jenny, if you can, can you please just kind of tell us what exactly is the PIDC for those who don't know? Sure. Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks, Dustin, and your colleagues for inviting me to participate in today's call. I appreciate the opportunity to connect with everyone and talk with people who are interested in Opportunity Zones. So PIDC is Philadelphia's public-private economic development corporation, and we have 60 years of experience investing in every neighborhood in the city. Our mission is to spur investment, support business growth, and foster development to create jobs, revitalize neighborhoods, and drive growth to every corner of Philadelphia. And we do this in a variety of different ways. We offer flexible financing tools. We offer a targeted portfolio of industrial and commercial real estate. We also try to offer decades of Philadelphia-based knowledge to help our clients invest, develop, and grow. So in general, though, we see our role as helping to fill the gaps and to act in areas where the private market isn't quite working. So in relation to opportunity zones, we recognize that the vast majority of deals probably are going to take place without our involvement or maybe even without our knowledge, and we're fine with that. We think that makes a lot of sense, um, especially for how the Opportunity Zone um, program has been structured. We are interested, however, in trying to fill any gaps in the Opportunity Zone market and doing so within the frameworks of equitable development. So, uh, so what kind of uh, Opportunity Zone projects are you seeing then from the PIDC? Sure. Um, we're seeing a lot of transactions here in Philly within the real estate market rather than with operating businesses. I'm sure that doesn't surprise you or anyone else on the call just because it seems like the operating business angle is a lot more tricky. Um, in yep. addition, most of the projects we're seeing right now are single projects, single fund. Um, a lot of these are deals that were happening anyway. There are developers who are looking for um, equity investments anyway, and it happened to coincide really well with, um, you know, with the opportunity zone timing. Um, and so a couple projects that, um, you know, we're working with or know about or talking with developers. Um, we have one project that we're talking about. It's in the Northwest Germantown section of the city. It's a rehab project. Um, it's going to have commercial office and 40 apartments. Um, a good percentage of the apartments are going to be affordable. Um, it's 40,000 square feet. It's 
the project cost for this one is about 6.4 million and they're looking for about 4 million in opportunity zone equity and some of the challenges this project faces it's in what would most people would consider a pretty marginal neighborhood um and so even you know it has the developers phenomenal developer great experience but it is <clears throat> what a lot of people consider a more marginal developed neighborhood where um <clears throat> there might be issues with the value and cost being a little out of whack and with appraisals perhaps not coming in. So it's a, it's a project that might have some challenges, which is one reason why we're looking at it. Um, another project that we're aware of here in Philly is um, that's like actively working with Opportunity Zone investors. It's in the River Wards area. It's actually awful. It's 40,000 square feet about. And it's a new construction project where they're going to have um, about 3,200 square feet of commercial and somewhere between 30 and 40 apartments. Um, this one probably is less skewed towards the affordable market um, and more market rate. Um, it's an $11.3 million project, and they're looking for equity around $4 million, and they think that they're going to be able to provide um, an annual return to investors around 8%. Those are examples of two of the projects we're seeing. Um, I think, you know, the differences between them is the location where one is in a much more marginal neighborhood compared to the one in the River Wards, which is in a much more like up and coming neighborhood where people might be a little bit more comfortable investing. Um, I think two other differences between the two is um, one is a developer who's very experienced, but has, um, frankly, you know, might not be as in touch with some of like the high net worth individuals and who are providing opportunity zone financing, whereas the other one I think is a developer who has a lot more of those connections. Um, and so those are a couple of projects that we know about here in Philly. Yeah, and we're, you know, I, I think a, a good a good uh, service that we're trying to provide for our uh, developer and investor clients, and it sounds like the PIDC is, is doing similar things, is really making those connections. Because you said there's there's great projects, um, people right. are interested in getting into space, but they don't necessarily know where the projects are. So can you tell us a little bit about how the PIDC is making those connections? Sure. Um, so in general, I'd like to say like our vision for how we're interacting with the Opportunity Zone space is to try to maximize the capital investment into Philadelphia and to ensure that as much private capital as possible is put into Philadelphia and that it's driving equitable growth and development in the areas, in the communities here where it's needed the most. And so we have three main strategies. Um, the first that you mentioned is like connect. How can we help connect projects and perhaps businesses when that becomes a little less murky um, with funds. And so, you know, what we've seen is that several of our developers here have stated that they haven't, they're not sure about the right way to connect with investors. And I'm sure that there's a lot of opportunity fund managers who are looking for projects. So we think that we could play a key role in helping to make these connections. Um, you know, we have a lot of experience in these neighborhoods. We, you know, routinely meet with developers who are doing all different types of projects in the city. And so right now, we've started to create a pipeline of projects where we're tracking a variety of different projects that are in opportunity zones and could be potential candidates. So right now, we're tracking um, over 200 projects in 65 of the 82 designated zones here in Philadelphia. And these range in scale from 1.5 million to 3.5 billion. This list includes a pretty wide variety of different types of project types from commercial to residential, hotels, grocery stores, art centers, industrial spaces. I think our pipeline is a true reflection of the diverse and innovative development opportunities that Philadelphia has to offer. Now, obviously, all 200 of these projects are not going to be ready tomorrow for an investment. They might be at different stages. Some of these, you know, might be developers that are not probably experienced enough to, you know, 
understand how to have these types of equity investments in some are so what we're doing right now is really fine-tuning that to figure out exactly what stage these products are in which projects really need assistance connecting with opportunity funds and which are either okay by themselves or for whatever reason just might not be like the perfect fit so that's one way that we're um, trying to work in this opportunity zone space something else we're doing that also relates to connecting is, is an attraction strategy so we're working really closely with the city to help philadelphia come up with a philadelphia strategy to attract opportunity zone funds um, basically we would love philadelphia to get its fair market share of national regional and local capital and have those opportunity zone equity investments coming into philadelphia so um, we're working with a lot of the people in the city government who are building upon this Philadelphia Deliver strategy that was developed through the Amazon HQ2 process to try to market Philadelphia as an ideal location for opportunity zone investment. So they're going to build a, there's this website that already exists called Philadelphia Deliver. So we're working with them to take that website kind of to the next level, have an entire section devoted to opportunity zones. And part of that is going to be how can, you know, the city also list all the different incentives that already exist that can be complementary to an opportunity zone investment, whether it's a 10-year tax abatement or other things like that. Um, so that's another way that we see ourselves playing the opportunity zone space and connecting. Um, the last one I wanted to mention is that, you know, traditionally we are a lender. We're, we're not experienced um, in terms of doing equity investments. We don't see ourselves as creating a fund. Um, so what we do see ourselves doing though is to provide is to be able to provide um, debt into projects that have gaps. So again, I think there's a lot of projects out there in Philadelphia that are going to happen. They don't need any of our help um, and they're fantastic projects, but we do see a lot of projects that even with um, equity investments coming in, they still might have some gap. And so we are launching a new debt product with really flexible features that we can use in um, for these opportunity zone projects. Um, and again, we're trying to find you know high impact projects and opportunity zones that are going to deliver something, something like that valuable to the community. And so um, right now, again, I'm, we're being as flexible as we can with these funds, so we can offer senior or subordinate debt. We do loan amounts up to two million dollars. Um, we would have interest rate at a fixed rate that we based on underwriting risk and also a little bit looking at the impact. Um, we'd offer a 10-year term to kind of match up with the equity investment with a long amortization, but we also would have an interest-only construction period, and there might even be opportunities where we could have, you know, shorter-term money that's true construction money that gets taken out. Basically, our thought with our gap financing for this debt is how can we use our financing to de-risk some of these deals? So like the first deal that I yeah. mentioned today that's in this neighborhood that some might consider more marginal, some people might not be interested in investing in it, even though it's a fantastic project and the developer is going to deliver. Um, so we see our money coming in not as a subsidy to the project, but helping to de-risk it so that investors can feel more confident that they're going to get the returns that they're promised. Um, yeah, and we would do other things like really flexible underwriting features. We would go up to um, a 90% LTV for these deals. We wouldn't have a prepayment penalty. Um, and something else that we will be doing for all of these deals that we look at is an impact screen. So we may not say that you have to have a certain type of impact, but we will be looking at each deal. And we're going to look at impact from a wide variety of factors. We don't care about just one thing. We want to see looking from a wide lens, is this project going to be impactful in a positive way in these communities? Yeah, no, that, that's great. I mean, that's that's always been one of uh, the PIDC's you know guiding principles, right, to help 
you know, projects right. that are really going to create economic investment in 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 areas. But but it's great. I I wasn't aware that y'all are developing a financing product specifically that ties up with yeah. uh, with the equity piece for opportunity zone investors. So that makes a lot of sense. And I think I think that'll that'll be a good catalyst to to like you said, fill those gaps in the investment in the investment in addition to that like oh so no i think it's exactly right in addition to that not only could it kind of de-risk some of these but for some of these projects that are happening in the neighborhoods where again are a little bit outside of people's comfort zones we can help these kind of be the, some of the first money into these projects to get people more comfort and to really maybe catalyze additional developments then in these areas right so maybe if it's this one neighborhood where people are a little bit nervous about coming in pnc could come in provide a lot of the debt a little bit of other financing could come in and then that might help other projects happen that are you know in that area we really would like to be a catalyst for this positive growth yep and it's also great you mentioned uh you mentioned your role with the city in in uh you know developing or educating folks who might not be from this area on you know where and why the investment opportunities exist in philadelphia and we've had we've had some of those same conversations frankly with uh investors and funds from you know places like the west coast seeking to diversify geographically some of them don't even know that places like the universe like university city exist right which is a which is an opportunity zone um, so it, it really is. I mean, there's such a good diversity of, uh, of of places to invest here in Philadelphia, some that are very early stage, some that are up and coming neighborhoods, as you said, and some that are established and, and the opportunity zones are sprinkled sprinkled all about in really, really interesting places that, that make projects interesting. Um, yeah, I think right. So, and I think what the city is planning on doing is for this Philadelphia Dealers Opportunity Zone website is to really focus on key areas. And develop almost like a neighborhood prospectus or something like that for kind of clusters of neighborhoods and put those on the website to try to drive attention to certain areas um, and you know I think they might pick a couple here and then as you know the year goes on add more and more neighborhoods to the website uh-huh so whether that's a whether that's a connector um, uh, role or a financing role what's what's a good way for uh, developers and funds to get in touch with the PIDC? Sure. Well, um, we're in touch with a lot of developers and we want to talk to more. So people who are in, who are developers, um, they're welcome to reach out to me or my colleagues, um, Sarah Stroni and Lawrence McComey. Um, Sarah and Lawrence are two people in our office who deal with our um, developer clients on a daily basis and help connect them with financing, whether it's something like this Opportunity Zone product or something else. That's one way to connect with us. Um, and for investors or people who are creating opportunity funds, we'd love to talk with you. I'm myself and a couple other colleagues are meeting on a pretty regular basis with opportunity funds just to understand what people are thinking about the Philadelphia market. Um, if people are interested in working with us um, specifically, you know, we think that there are um, you know a lot of services that we might be able to offer opportunity funds who are interested in coming into Philadelphia. And so um, I'm happy to provide my email and um, phone number if people want it to call me either about deep, you know, deals or about learning more about what's happening here in Philadelphia. Yeah, please do. We'll uh, we'll also circulate it via email when we distribute the recording. But but feel free to please uh, uh, state your email just uh, yeah. and, and phone number so that people can. Yeah. Yeah, my phone is two one five four nine six eight one three nine, and my email is. Jay Crowther, which is J C R O W T as a Tom H E R at P 
P-I-D-C, Scylla.com. So um, great, people great. feel free to reach me directly. And again, I'm happy to kind of take in any of those calls and kind of structure them either with your developer, help you connect to with colleagues. And if you're a fund manager, you can work directly with me and my colleague, Ann Nevins, to, um, you know, meet with us and we'll talk. Okay, great. And uh, we have our first question. And, and just as a reminder to the people on the phone, um, we'd love to take your questions for, for Jenny or about the Opportunity Zone program generally. Uh, the email address is oz at rccblaw.com, and uh, we'll take your questions that way. Um, our first question, Jenny, and, and we touched on this a little bit um, earlier in terms of the diversification and investment opportunities in Philly, but if I'm, if I'm a fund, uh, what makes Philly perhaps a different type of investment opportunity or more attractive investment opportunity compared to, uh, you know, opportunity fund investments outside of this area? Sure. So one is, you know, Philadelphia is an area that's having a lot of positive momentum and positive change. You know, our population is growing. We're seeing lots of new jobs being created more so now than in the last like 30 years. Um, and so there's a lot of really positive momentum, something else. But that said, I feel like it is a little, Philadelphia is a little bit off people's radar in terms of a potential place to invest. And so in that way, I think, you know, Philadelphia is a place where someone could come in and be one of the first investors and really see, um, you know, a positive return on their funds. Um, I think that, um, you know, there's a lot of different opportunities for, there's a lot of different diversity of projects that someone could see here in Philadelphia versus other areas. And for people who are more um, impact-minded, I think a lot of the Philadelphia communities here are less in danger of, you know, immediate like gentrification or displacement. So that could be something for more impact-minded investor to think about and try to um, come in as. And um, for those who are maybe less concerned about impact, I, you know, I think that there's some neighborhoods here that people might think are pretty marginal, but there's a lot of neighborhoods here that are really on the cusp of, um, you know, having some really great revitalization without leading to, you know, major displacement. So I feel like it's a really great place to think about investing. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I echo all that. I guess one thing um, that, that I was excited to learn when, when we got involved with the PIDC is some of the other kind of ancillary services, um, such as diligencing and, and you know, providing some, some uh, advice and consulting to people looking to invest in the zones. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So um, for those people who are interested in trying to develop a type of partnership with PIDC, um, and this, I guess, would be more on the fund manager or investor side, you know, we feel like we could offer a variety of different types of services. So one is we could help generate deal flow. We are on the ground here every day in Philadelphia. We have, you know, a staff who are out there generating deals every day for our own lending activities. Um, and so one, we could generate deal flow for you. We really understand the, the neighborhoods. We understand the developers. We know how these developers work and which ones have, you know, good track records, which ones don't, which neighborhoods are the best to invest in right now. And we've done a lot of, not only do we have both, like on the ground knowledge, but we've done a lot of data analysis in the last two years to really look at neighborhoods and figure out which ones have positive indicators, which ones have negative indicators and where we think, um, you know, investment might take off. So two, we have a lot of experience with financial analysis and project feasibility. Um, we have a you know long long track record of lending both on the small business front as well as on the commercial real estate front. You know um, we do everything from new market tax credit activities to also participate in a program called the EB5. Um, 
investment programs. So we have a lot of different um, either lending um, or tax credit programs that we are actively working on and do on an everyday basis. You know, already this year, we've probably closed probably $90 million in commercial real estate loans, um, including some new markets. So we have a lot of expertise in doing the financial analysis that might help some um, investors. Um, again, we had already mentioned that we're able to lend additional capital into projects alongside opportunity funds. It could be this flexible debt product that I mentioned earlier. It could be some of our new markets allocation. It could be something else that's, you know, within one of our other tools that we might have. Um, four, we think that, you know, if if they're, if it's valuable to someone who's, you know, outside of the city or is, you know, busy doing other things, we're able to gather and evaluate a lot of due diligence materials for someone. So you don't have to necessarily direct, like, you know, ask the developer, can I have this? Can I have that? We could play that role in terms of gathering all the materials that you might need to do your due diligence and then pass it off to you. We could do some preliminary analysis and vetting for you, although ultimately I assume all funds are going to want to do their own, you know, independent analysis, especially as they consider an equity investment. And finally, for those who are impact-minded, we're able to evaluate and monitor impact for you. We can do an impact screen. We have one that we've already developed, so we can um, provide you information on that as well. That, that's really interesting, and it's funny that you uh, you kind of anticipated the next question. We got a question from the audience about you know whether whether there's projects out there that have an overlap between opportunity zone benefits and, and EB five benefits, um, mm -hmm. and, and we're also seeing internally at the firm you know a lot of these. Uh, it makes perfect sense, right? A lot of uh, opportunity zones um, qualify for the other uh, favorable government or nonprofit benefits. We have a project in Kensington right now that. Uh, is, is seeking opportunity zone investment, but it also is um, leveraging historic tax credits at the federal level in order to make the project, uh, you know, more economically viable. And, and there are so many resources, and, and people like the the PIDC, you know, are ex experts in kind of gathering and understanding all those resources that make these projects, um, you know, very very attractive and feasible. Um, to that point, do you have you seen any projects that actually uh, we haven't? But have you seen any projects that actually involve both EB five and uh, opportunity zone investments quite yet? We have not yet, um, but no. we're thinking about it and looking at it. And in fact, um, some people may or may not know, but PIDC um, is a regional center for EB five, and we have a partnership with a group called Can Am, which is based in New York. So we underwrite, we identify deals, we underwrite deals and our partner is in charge of actually finding the investors. And so through our collaboration with Can-Am, we've done almost 30 projects here in Philadelphia, $700 million of investments in EB-5. So we have a really strong relationship with Can-Am, and I'm meeting, I'm going up to New York this Friday to chat with them about this and other topics. So this is definitely on, I think, the radar of people who are doing EB-5. I think another um, tool that you'll see a lot of um, pairing with um, Opportunity Zones is going to be new market tax credits. Um, and so we've definitely seen and are evaluating a couple projects now, two projects that um, are trying to figure out if there's a way to have a new market tax credit structure with Opportunity Zone investment. Yeah, yeah, that sounds interesting. Um, okay, well, I guess, uh, you know, we'd like to switch focus in a second to our initial thoughts on the proposed regs. Is there anything else, Jenny, that you'd like to, to tell the audience um, while we got you on the phone? 
um, I guess I'll just close by you know thanking you so much for the opportunity to talk um, with you and to you know answer any questions. And as I said, we really are interested in talking with everyone about this, whether you're a developer, a fund manager, or investor. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me and contact me if you'd like to continue this. this excuse me, to continue this discussion. Yeah, no, I echo that. The yeah. uh, the PIDC is a great resource, whether they're in the deal as a lender or just educating. Uh, developers or, or fund sponsors on all the resources available um, economically and, and otherwise. It's, it's really a, a good, they're a good friend to have when you're doing business in, in real estate development in Philadelphia. Well, thanks, Jenny. We really appreciate you hopping on the phone. Um, again, so we'd like to uh, to focus at this or change focus at this point to um, to our initial thoughts on the proposed regulations that came out on Friday. And for that, uh, I'm here with my colleague, Layla Vaughn, uh, another member of the tax department here at Roger Cooper that's closely following Opportunity Zones and advising our clients on the developer side and the fund side and the investor side on, on how they can participate in the program and structure their projects. Um, we will have a much deeper dive two Wednesdays from now on the proposed regs. Uh, they did just come out Friday. We've been studying them nonstop, but uh, but they're pretty dense, and you know people will have continuing evolving thoughts. So please be on the lookout, and we're we're excited for that. But you know we do have some initial thoughts and and some simple things to kind of let you know uh, about the regs that hopefully clarify some of the questions, and uh, and allow people who would have, who are thinking about investing to kind of uh, uh, get over the hump and, and get in these projects. Um, so I guess I'll start there. So Layla, what is uh, what is one of the most interesting things in the regs that that could provide some investor clarity and, and simplify these projects? Do you have any kind of view on that? Um, sure. I mean, of course, everything is very interesting in the regs. <laughs> maybe instead of starting with the most interesting thing, I'll just point out some background um, points about the proposed regs and what we do with them at this point. Uh, one First comment, they came out on Friday, and we can rely on them now, but, but in order to rely on them at all, you have to be relying on them in their entirety and in applying them in a consistent manner. So you cannot pick and choose um, that you like one of the rules, but when it comes to the next rule, you're going to take the position that these are just proposed regs and therefore in a, inapplicable. Yeah, and that's important, right? So the regs are, are proposed. They could change, right? So the way regs... Uh, are issued by the government is they issue a proposed regulation and they say to the public, you know, please send us your comments, send us your concerns, and we'll be responsive. And to their credit, they, they usually are. And after they go through that process, they finalize the regs. Um, and then once they finalize the regs, they really are law. And in the interim, they might change. So they might propose a rule and say, you know, uh, uh, for instance, we'll get into this, but, you know, something with respect to the way land is treated for opportunity zone purposes. And and uh, once they get the comments, they realize that that rule didn't necessarily make commercial sense, and they change it. So in the interim, you can rely on proposed regs, and you can form your projects based on the rule that they announced. But once the final reg comes out, if it's different, you no longer rely on the proposed reg. So um, you know, to the extent there's uh, there's some favorable rules in here, we we don't anticipate a lot of them changing, but it's important to kind of you know deal with the rules as they currently exist. And, and they evolve, you know, throughout. So if there's a favorable rule, you got to get your project in. Right. And I think these are subject to a 60-day comment period. So, um, you know, we, we know it'll be a little while before we see them get finalized. Um, in addition, this is the first of two regulation packages. So not all of the issues that we have, um, you know, that 
all practitioners have, have been addressed by these regulations. And, and the regs were also accompanied by a revenue ruling. And we're not going to focus on a lot of intricate details, Dustin mentioned uh, on this call, but, uh, you know, the rules that we're explaining are kind of high-level points about the proposed regulations and this revenue ruling. And, you know, I would say the most anticlimactic provision that they came out with is allowing LLCs that are taxed as partnerships um, or, frankly, LLCs that are taxed as corporations to be eligible um, to be qualified opportunity funds. It, it was, you know, kind of a silly concern, perhaps, that the code provision did not make it clear that a, an entity taxed as a partnership or as a corporation was eligible. It referred to entities organized as a partnership or a corporation. And so, you know, this just makes it clear that the rule we thought would be applied is actually applied. Yeah, and we thought that was going to happen, but it is it is helpful, right? It makes projects more simple, um, slightly more simple, rather than setting up a limited partnership for your real estate investment and having to deal with multiple entities. You can set up an LLC, which is simpler and, right. and more efficient these days. So there is some, some benefit there. Um, I guess one of the questions, uh, Layla, that, that investors have had is, you know, the Opportunity Zone benefits or Opportunity Zone program is intended to attract capital gain investment into these uh, uh, areas seeking development or the areas that the government says, says should be developed. Um, and one question investors have is, you know, what types of gains can they put into these projects? Um, can you speak to that? Is there anything in the proposed regs that address that question? Yeah, so the code had provided more generically for any gain to be reinvestment, reinvested. Um, and it, it was a little bit disappointing that the proposed regulations limit the gain that's eligible to be rolled into a qualified opportunity fund to capital gains specifically. Um, it, there, so that, ex, that ends up excluding certain items. It does include both long-term and short-term capital gains, which is helpful for anyone with short-term capital gains. Um, it includes Section 1231 gains from a disposition of business assets. But it excludes gain on inventory. It excludes depreciation recapture that is characterized as ordinary income. It includes unrecaptured Section 1250 gain. Um, and just to explain a little bit what that is, that's the gain that's taxed at 25% under Section 1250 as, um, as compared to the amount taxed at ordinary income rates. So just briefly, I don't want to bore everyone, but Section 1250 recaptures as ordinary income the bonus depreciation on real estate. So that amount that is taken in excess of straight-line depreciation, but um, after 1987, at least rental real estate is all straight-line, um, that it's required to be taken on a straight-line basis. Um, so you, you may have the uh, recapture on things like leasehold Im improvements, but you're not too likely to have um, the issue of recapture from rental real estate, for example. Yeah, so that's so, 25%. So if I if I sell my Apple stock, you know, public securities or or something in a brokerage account, I could certainly invest that in an opportunity zone, right? Right, and and even if you only bought it yesterday and had some gain in, yeah. you know, a very short term. Yeah, and and if I sell my business, it's kind of a yellow light, right? Because when you sell a business, uh, a lot of 
the uh, gain will be taxed as capital gain, but but there's this concept of hot assets, right? And in many of these sales where some of your purchase price will be allocable to inventory, some of it will be allocable to depreciation or capture, as you said, and sometimes accounts receivable if you're if you're a cash basis taxpayer. And there you get a red light, right? So it's kind of if you're selling a business and looking to invest the proceeds into a, an opportunity zone, uh, some of your gain is is reinvestable and eligible for these benefits, and some of it's not. Right. Um, and to your point of hot assets, that is, you know, even if you're selling the partnership a partnership interest rather than selling the underlying assets in an asset sale. Yep. So if you're selling your business, or frankly, if you're exiting a, a another real estate investment, it's important to kind of work closely with your tax advisor to understand exactly how much. Uh, eligible gain you'll have to put into these projects um, at, at both a conceptual and, and a kind of a quantitative level. Uh, so I guess one more thing or one additional thing that uh, is interesting, and, and this is very favorable, frankly, for investors uh, looking to invest in the zones, is that uh, there's this rule of substantial improvement, right? So substantial improvement generally says, and again, this point of this is to, the point of the program is to try to invest or attract capital investment into these areas that the government wants wants investment. So substantial improvement says to get opportunity zone benefits, you need to double your cost basis in in uh, in the zones. But having said that, the government came out with a favorable rule in these proposed regs, which is uh, you don't need to double the investment in land. You only need to double the investment in uh, you know buildings and tangible property located on the land. So what does that mean? That means uh, if I invest $100 of capital gain into an opportunity zone and say uh, $70 of that value is, is allocable to land and $30 is allocable to the building on the land, that means to meet substantial improvement, I only need to invest another $30. So that's going to make a lot more projects a lot more feasible. Now, obviously, that's sensitive to you know the relative valuation of the land and the building, um, and that's going to be project by project by project. But you know, it does mean that the capital investment and the capital expenditures that you need to put into the project are less than we thought they might otherwise be. So it's going to make a lot more projects economically viable um, and practical, which is a really great rule. Um, there's also a little bit of, uh, of complexity with respect to land, and we'll also see this in, in, in a different rule in the context of working capital. So you get the benefit to say that, uh, you know, again, you don't need to substantially improve the land. But you also need to determine uh, there's a 90% test, right? So 90% of the assets in an, in an opportunity fund need to be qualifying assets. And I guess one question that uh, uh, the rules or the proposed regs have left open is, fine, so you don't need to substantially improve land, but if the land is held directly by the opportunity fund, is it is it a qualified property? Is it qualified property for for purposes of that 90% test? I think the government, and tell me if you disagree here, Leila, I think the government is intending to tell you it is, but the rules aren't crystal clear. I agree. I think, um, you know, when you read the revenue ruling and the example in it, they're, they're clearly not treating it as a bad asset, in the example especially. Um, if you, you know, I, I would read into that that either it would be excluded from your calculation entirely, so it's not, you know, to determine your 90%, it's neither in the numerator nor the denominator, or it's a good asset. Probably, that's probably right, um, and that's an important point because you know a lot of uh, we have a friend of our law firm who's developing uh, a business um, where a lot of the value in these opportunity zone investments is 
is really in land, uh, old dilapidated buildings that need some environmental remediation, but the land is incredibly valuable. So, you know, it's important for projects like that, that land is a good asset. Um, now, one bit of self-help that uh, somebody in that situation could do where there's a little bit of uncertainty as whether their land qualifies is, is make the acquisition in a vehicle underneath the opportunity zone, or excuse me, the opportunity fund. Uh, the technicalities of that get a little complicated, but at a high level, uh, if you have an, an opportunity fund invest in, say, a partnership rather than hold land directly, the partnership has a rule under these proposed regs that says only 70% of its assets need to be good assets. So that gives you a lot more leeway, right? If you have a if you have an investment that uh, you know where the value of the land is substantial compared to the value of any tangible property or, or buildings on the land, you know you're you're safer using a 70% rule than kind of a, a vague, uh, although we hope favorable, 90% rule if you hold it directly. And just to emphasize, if you meet the 70% test in an entity that you hold, keep in mind we're talking about a partnership or a corporation, not a disregarded LLC, for example, then you, if that entity meets the 70% test, all of the equity interests in that, in that entity are good assets for the 90% test. Yeah, managing that 90% test to me seems to be uh, one of the most important things that a, that a fund sponsor is going to have to do as they manage their opportunity fund. Um, it, it can't be kind of set it and forget it. It's a kind of a constant valuation test. And frankly, that's in the proposed regs as well, right? How, how a fund sponsor or anybody on running an opportunity fund would measure their, uh, their 90% test. Um, generally, it's going to be financial statements, but sometimes it's cost. And that's, that's an area that I've seen where people uh, are considering asking the government just to go to cost because uh, financial statement valuations can fluctuate in, in a less certain and predictable manner. I think the government thought they were doing a favorable rule and a simple rule by using financial statements, but, uh, but they may have, you know, unintended, uh, incidentally made, made a rule that's not as favorable for, for funds. Um, but there is a lot of complexity there. As we, as we mentioned, you know, the difference between the 70% test and the 90% test and the difference between a, a disregarded entity and a partnership, that starts to get pretty complicated pretty quickly. So that's an area where, uh, where anybody considering and uh, starting a fund should, should really be working closely with their tax advisor on, on how to structure that properly so they get the benefit and make sure that they can, they can meet those tests. Um, a similar rule, there was this question of, uh, before the proposed regs came out, you know, of working capital, right? So uh, I, I acquire a building, you know, I intend to uh, uh, substantially improve it, and, and I have 30 months to do that under the statute. You know, but on day one, I need to bring in my investor money, and I'm going to need cash on hand in order to improve the building. Uh, cash itself is not a good asset. So there was a question as to whether working capital that you're going to use for purposes of improving the building, you know, could be kind of deemed to be a good asset or whether it was just considered a bad asset. Frankly, if it was a bad asset, that would make projects very, very difficult. But fortunately, the government came out with a favorable rule here. And the rule is if you're inside one of those subsidiaries, such as a partnership or a corporation, they're probably going to be partnerships, that is owned by an opportunity fund then you have uh, 31 months to spend working capital on the building. And in, in 
And if you do that, the working capital in the interim is is not a bad asset, and uh, and and that makes projects a lot simpler. Um, there's some rules around that as to uh, what you need to do to show that cash on your balance sheet is actually working capital. Uh, generally, you need a written plan, you know, showing that you're going to invest the working capital in good assets, and you need to stick to the plan, right? It needs to be reasonable as to how much working capital you need for a project. You need to stick to it. You can't say, you know, I was going to spend this on working on uh, improving the building, but I decided to spend it on something that's a bad asset. Um, so there are some rules, but but the good news is generally. Generally, uh, inside those partnerships, if you spend your uh, working capital on a project and, and you document that you're going to do it, you have basically 31 months before your working capital becomes a bad asset. So that makes projects very economically feasible, and it also makes you know investing in the fund uh, and managing the timing of obtaining investment in a fund you know more manageable. And just to reemphasize a point that Dustin made here is you get a lot more leeway here if you have a tiered structure rather than if your qualified opportunity fund is investing directly in qualified opportunity zone business assets. If the partnership that's, that elects to be the QOF holds those assets directly, then those assets have to meet the 90% test. In contrast, we're, we're looking at that substantially all rule where where a lower tier entity only has to meet a 70% good asset test as you know a critical component to yep. the structuring. Yep. So the lower tier entity gets the benefit of the working capital safe harbor and and the 70% rule. So again, just to reiterate, these rules get really really complicated real fast. So uh, you know you can't you can't just open an opportunity fund and and you know say well, I'm going to buy a building and in an opportunity zone and be done. You really got to manage those 90% tests. And, and that requires working closely with a tax advisor on structure and, and capital expenditure plans and balance sheet testing and all those things. Uh, one other question, I guess, Leila, is you know there there was an outstanding question on what happens with debt, right? A lot of these projects involve debt. Has the government spoken to that at all in the proposed regs? They have spoken about debt, but for all the worrying we've been doing about how debt is treated, they only gave us a single page, uh, so that was disappointing. Um, what the code does is it treats an investment in a qualified opportunity fund that is not eligible for a qualified opportunity zone election or isn't subject to a QOZ election as a separate interest. So Section 752A would deem a taxpayer to contribute cash to a partnership. This is a general rule outside the qualified opportunity zone rules. Um, so it, it deems the taxpayer to contribute cash to a partnership equal to his or her share of the partnership liabilities. And the regs clarify that the interplay between these two, um, the, the fact that you have a 752A deemed contribution doesn't create a separate partnership interest in connection with that deemed cash contribution that would be ineligible for QOZ benefits. In fact, if you had a 100% contribution, 100% of your contribution to the fund is QOZ eligible and you elect the deferral, then your share of the partnership's borrowing is does not affect your interest being 100% in connection with a, a QOZ, a QOF. Excuse me. So, 
What the regs don't explicitly say, though, is that the QOZ investor actually gets basis for its share of the debt under 752A. And that's a little bit odd because um, it's a pretty important issue. But as I read it, they seem to be implying or assuming that you get basis um, the way it's written. It, it's generally a tax-favorable position, although I, I would have appreciated greater clarity on it. On how 752A interplays with the yeah, I think I think that's certainly evolving. I think that's an evolving rule. We don't have all the clarity we want, but um, you know the the issue becomes that's really important is a normal real estate project. One of the reasons real estate is is tax favorable is that it usually throws off uh, interest deductions and uh, and depreciation deductions that you know. In, in most circumstances, result in taxable losses the first few years of, of the real estate investment. Uh, there's a rule in the Opportunity Zone space that says you don't get basis until you pay tax on your Opportunity Zone uh, interest. So the question was, you know, whether that limitation really defers the uh, or, or eliminates perhaps even, you know, this, the usual favorable tax benefits of investing in real estate. The government really didn't give us an answer, which you know is disappointing. But they also didn't give us a bad answer, which is good in that respect. So that's that's an issue that kind of remains to be seen. Um, I tend to think you know they want to make these investments attractive. Uh, they haven't ruled it out. I think it's a really complicated issue, but I think we're going to wind up with a good favorable rule where you can take your depreciation and your interest expense losses that are thrown off by opportunity zones. But again, we just we just don't know yet. I think that's a key question. Uh, one other key question that unfortunately they didn't answer quite yet um, is, you know, if, if an opportunity zone itself, or I'm excuse me, an opportunity fund itself disposes of assets in, in a taxable transaction, whether that undermines the exemption of the investors uh, that need to hold their equity in the opportunity zone for 10 years in order to get the benefits. We just don't know that quite yet. Again, um, like Layla said in the beginning of the call, uh, we're going to have another round of proposed regs. The government just felt they were too overwhelmed. They wanted to get out guidance quickly. And and I do think in my heart of hearts they want to give investor-friendly rules to make this program work. But but we just don't know yet, and that's going to be a key question because um, these 10-year projects, you know, one of the things uh, developers and, and fund sponsors are concerned about is, you know, whether a 10-year hold is too, is too long in order to, uh, you know, to not have flexibility to diversify out of that without creating tax issues. Um, so that's a little disappointing, those two key questions with respect to debt and diversifying and selling assets at the uh, fund level. Um, we don't quite know the answer quite yet, but um, perhaps maybe we should end in a more, more favorable note than, than those two questions being unanswered. So let's, let's maybe talk about one more item. Um, it's a small item, but it is helpful and investor-friendly, and that's, uh, that's opportunity zone elections in, in the context of, of a partnership. So what that means is, you know, a partnership, say, sells its real estate, it has a capital gain, and some of the investors uh, want opportunity zone benefits to roll in, roll the proceeds of the capital gain into an opportunity zone, and some don't. Um, they just want to take their cash and, and move on. So what the rules say, and this is great, this gives a lot of flexibility, is you can you can handle that situation or situations like that in a number of different ways. If all the investors want to uh, have the opportunity zone benefits, the partnership can make an election for, for them to roll the uh, capital gains into a new opportunity zone. It's simple. It's easy. If, if some of the investors want benefits and some don't, you can also do it at the partner level. 
So the uh, partnership can allocate out capital gains and make cash distributions the same way it ordinarily would. And then, you know, one partner can make the election and another one, again, doesn't have to. They can just, you know, do what they want with their cash. Um, so you have flexibility there. And the other part about that is it really extends this 180-day deadline, and this is important. Um, again, investors need to redeploy their capital gains within 180 days from the time they have capital gains in order to get opportunity zone best invest excuse me opportunity zone benefits. But there's this nice rule in the proposed regs that says, well, partnerships don't allocate capital gains until the last day of their tax year. So your capital gain isn't triggered on the day the partnership sells its property. Your part your excuse me your 180 day period isn't triggered on the day the partnership sells its property. Because the partnership has a capital gain, but the partners don't. Rather, your uh, capital gain is triggered on the last day of the tax year, because that's when you know the partnership closes its tax year and allocates out those capital gains. So, if a partnership say sells its property in you know May 1st, um, it's not going to allocate out some capital gains until December 31, and that means the investors or the partners of that really have until uh, uh, May 31 of the following year or June 30th, excuse me, the following year in order to uh, in order to determine whether they want to be in opportunity zones at the partner level. So that's great. That gives a lot of flexibility and a longer um, a longer uh, lead time than than some people uh, had had envisioned would would be the case. And that also applies to S corporations. Right. That's true. S corporations, trusts and and anything that's subject to tax as a pass through is going to have that flexibility. Um, so that's a really nice rule. It extends the deadline again for 180-day rollover for for a lot of clients. Um, we're going to wrap up in a moment. We did have one question from the audience to try to to try to reclarify the difference between the 70% rule and the 90% rule, and, uh, and we're happy to do that. Um, that uh, that gets a little complicated, but we're happy to kind of to, to reiterate and hopefully do it in a way that's clear. Um, so there's two ways to for an opportunity fund to hold assets. One is directly, right? You can set up an opportunity fund tomorrow and it can buy assets. And the rule is over 90% of its assets uh, buy either generally uh, financial statement value or sometimes cost if it doesn't produce financial statements need to be you know qualified opportunity zone property. Um, and what is not clear is that uh, land that's not substantially improved is is good property for that purpose. So if you were to hypothetically, and again, this is not clear. We're not saying the rules are bad in this respect. We're saying the regulations haven't answered the answered the question one way or the other in this respect. But hypothetically, if you spend $100 on a piece of property and you say, you know, $91 is allocable to the land and $9 is allocable to the building, um, it's possible that the land is not a good asset and you would have blown the 90% test. Actually, I stated that in the inverse. Even if it were $89 applicable to the building and $11 applicable to the land, then you might not have a good asset um, if that's the only things on, on the balance sheet of the opportunity fund. So again, it's a 90% rule and it's not clear under the current rules whether land is a good asset. The 70% rule comes in if the opportunity fund doesn't own assets directly, but rather owns equity in another company, and the other company has its own rules to qualify as a good asset, but 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 they're they're generally pretty simple and 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 doable. Um, if you have any questions, obviously we're we're available and standing by to to answer them. But but for sake of this conversation, let's say the other entity is a good asset. 
The other entity itself only needs to have 70% rather than 90% of its assets be good assets. So if you go back to that same example where, you know, say 89% of the property of the building, is, uh, excuse me, 89% of the purchase price is allocable to uh, uh, the building and 11% is allocable to the land, then under the 70% rule in a subsidiary, that's a good asset. And that means 100% of the value of the stock of the subsidiary is going to be a good asset at the, at the fund level. Now, I think it's really complicated, but uh, but the, the long and the short of it is that you get a lot more flexibility if if you hold your land and, and your other bad assets, frankly, all your assets in a subsidiary rather than directly at the fund level. Um, and the reason for that is is the test in order to have a lower tier entity's stock or partnership interest be good assets is that substantially all of the assets in that entity and, and substantially all of the tangible assets in that entity are qualified opportunity zone business property and the regs define substantially all as 70% but substantially all does not is not the overall asset test it is only the test for determining whether equity interests are going to be good assets or bad assets. Yep, yep. There's 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 quite a few kind of little nits and, and nats to make sure that you're compliant with the rules and that you're structured up correctly. Again, you know, managing that 90% test or the 70% test and, and getting the structure done so that you can manage the balance sheet tests uh, based on the business plan is really paramount and important. And that's something that uh, that that taxpayers should really be working with their tax advisors to do. Um, that's it for today. Again, we're going to have a deeper dive into the regs and, and you know, see how they're uh, affecting transactions uh, at our, that on, on our call that's two weeks from today. Um, and uh, hopefully that's exciting for you guys the way that's excited for us as tax nerds. But uh, we appreciate you calling in. Uh, we'll distribute the call again, a recording of the call, and, and we're excited for your comments and, and to hear about the investments you all are making in Opportunity Zones. So thank you to Layla. Thank you again to Jenny if you're still on the phone, and thank you to our audience, and we'll see you in two weeks.